Welcome to the weekly podcast, recorded live at Glory City Church, Brisbane. We hope you are blessed by this week's sermon. There is a mandate on this house for the message of righteousness. That is, that the gospel doesn't just forgive us of our sins, but actually sets us free from them. And it's not just a doctrine that we made up, it's not a new doctrine, it's not a new gospel. It's also not a construct of bits of scripture from everywhere, just jammed together to make something. It's actually plainly spelt out clearly in the New Testament, in the book of Romans. And knowing it from the scripture clearly is actually an important foundation for us to believe it, because if you can believe it, you actually walk in freedom. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Come on. It's like the Rosetta Stone of the whole Bible. I don't think God's message has changed in 5,000 years. (laughs) Father God... I pray that you'd give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our understanding, of our hearts, God, so we would know what is the hope of your calling, what is the glory of the richness of your inheritance in the saints, God, and your power towards us who believe Jesus. Lord, I pray that you release the full assurance of understanding (laughs) that comes with a true knowledge of God's revelation, that is Christ Jesus, in whom are hidden all the riches of wisdom. Yeah? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jesus. I genuinely believe that we're in a time of a revolution of understanding the New Testament. I think the days of speculating over what it means are gone. And we're going to see a revolution in Bible colleges, in churches, in ministries where its actual meaning is clear and understandable and preached with authority. And then people will say, just like Jesus when he walked the earth, that this is one that speaks not as the scribes and Pharisees, but one that speaks with authority. Because there is an actual meaning. There's no subjectivity to it. It's not subject to interpretation. The Holy Spirit meant something specific. And the gospel is powerful and clear. It was clearly preached in the first century, and it will be definitely clearly preached in this one. Amen? Romans chapter 5, we're just going to dive straight into it. We're going to start at verse 6. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says these two most amazing verses that confused me for about 15 years. He says this, Much more then, having been justified by his blood, We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
I never understood them much more. Like, the blood of Jesus has paid the price for my sins, as in the punishment, so that I can be reconciled to God. What else is there? That was the question I asked. Why the much more? I never got it. So I actually took Romans 5, 9, and 10, and I kind of put it on the shelf. I said, Holy Spirit, this is, this is nearly 19 years ago. I said, I don't understand. Teach me what this means. And it's become the doorway to one of the most profound revelations and understanding of these scriptures I've ever had. Because it's actually a doorway to the true fullness of the gospel. It says his blood reconciled us to the Father, but it's his life that saves us. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's the beautiful thing about the book of Romans. It's not a theological book. It's not a, it's not a big like textbook. It is a theological book, but it's not a theological textbook. Are you with me? There's a difference, hey? It's not divided into chapters. Paul's not addressing things in separation. In Romans chapter 1, he actually spells out what the rest of the book is about. He's going to preach the gospel. Now, it would seem strange because the people that he's sending this letter to, they're already saved. They've actually given their life to Christ already. Except they don't have a New Testament. They've just got the apostles teaching them from house to house. So you know what's going to happen? He's actually discipleship. You've been changed, and now I'm going to explain to you what's happened to you. Are you with me? So he starts from the beginning, and he explains the condition of mankind and the inability to live a holy life and be reconciled to God. And then he says, hey, the law, it's not going to fix you and it can't save you. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 4, he proves it. He proves it from the Old Testament, the scriptures that they knew. He proves it from David and he proves it from Abraham. And so we finish chapter 5 and we're like, okay, I know I've been reconciled to God. I know I've been made right. This word justified, this word righteous, diakosunes in Greek. But what does it mean now? What, what, what happened now? Like, okay, I know I'm, I've got this thing called righteousness and it, it couldn't come through my own works and it couldn't come through the law, but it's come by faith. So now what? So Paul has to digress a little bit and begin to explain what actually happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so you can understand what's happened to you. Does that make sense? So we launch in at chapter 5 and Paul's beginning to explain what's going on. But he's going to digress all the way back to Adam to explain the condition of man. Because if you don't understand the disease, you won't understand the cure. If you don't understand the symptoms, you won't know what you've been taken or delivered from. Does that make sense? And in doing so, we've got to understand it's not just the blood of Jesus. It's not just his death that saved us. Actually, he's alive as well. It's the fullness of the gospel. Verse 11, And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And then he begins, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so sin spread to all men because all sinned. 
So right at the beginning, there's this one man, and we'll later on see that it's Adam, and this thing called sin comes in. Now that word's not a verb. It's a noun. So this thing, imagine my phone here, is this thing, this noun called sin actually enters into humanity, actually comes into humanity. And it's passed on from Adam to all mankind. So all are subject to this thing, almost like a disease inside of us. And then it says, because of this thing called sin, all died. Next verse says this. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What it's saying is this. Sin was in humanity, killing humanity, long before the law came along. That's significant. There's a temptation with a revelation or at least an unfinished revelation of grace to think that the law is somehow bad or that the law is somehow God's cosmic killjoy that came into history at some random point, yeah? But actually, this thing called sin was in humanity and it was the gateway to this greater thing called death that reigned over humanity right from the get-go and it did so through sin, yeah? See, humanity was already in trouble long before the law came along, yeah? But you can't know why you're dying if you don't have a diagnosis. But the law has come to impute sin, to rightly diagnose the problem with humanity. But a diagnosis won't cure you, will it? We need something else. Let's keep reading. Is everyone okay? We're going to read a lot of Romans tonight. I'm not actually going to pull a teaching from outside of Romans and use Romans to back it up. I'm actually going to let the Scripture speak for itself because the best sermons are already written. These men that lived and died to impart a revelation of the gospel. Hello. Beautiful. (laughs) I don't know lived and died to impart this revelation to their generation. I love minions, by the way. They're awesome. He's beautiful. (laughs) Bye. Is everyone with me? So the gospel's right here. So nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Sin was already inside him, killing, killing humanity. That's a long time, by the way. I, I can't remember what it was. I think it was 2,500 years between Adam and Moses. That's a long time. Even over those who hadn't sinned in the likeness or the same way as Adam sinned, who is a type of him who was to come? But the free gift... Now we're getting to the gospel. It's not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, many died, 
Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. I'm going to explain some of this in a second. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all, lost my spot, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, there were made many sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. This is what he's saying. He's saying, hey, Adam and Jesus, there's a similar pattern between them. But the gift of grace, its pattern is slightly different from how the transgression came along. Watch, one man, Adam, did one transgression and it resulted to condemnation for everybody. One man, Jesus, did one righteous act and it made available salvation and righteousness to everyone. You with me? So there's a similarity. You can clap. Praise God. But here's the next, but he says, but the gift of grace has a slightly different pattern from the way the transgression worked. What does that mean? Watch. One transgression of Adam actually led to many, many transgressions. So we see from the beginning, there's one man, he gets this thing called sin. But if you fast forward time, one sin, suddenly you've got the whole of humanity subject to this thing called sin. And there's lots of transgressions. And thereby it, lots of death and condemnation. Yeah? So in response to one transgression, there's all this stuff. But grace doesn't come in response to one transgression. It actually comes in response to all of the transgressions and shows itself bigger. Are you with me? So the pattern's slightly different. Why is that important? Next verse. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, no matter how big the transgressions of the individual or the earth, grace has the capacity to show itself even bigger. Are you with me? No matter what you've done, if you're in this place and you don't know Jesus Christ, no matter how big it is that you think that you've messed your life up, Grace can show it larger. So that as sin reigned in death, remember this thing kills us. It kills humanity. And death reigns over humanity through sin. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. Now I just or rather Paul just, made a statement. He said, hey, no matter how big the, hu- the sins of humanity get, grace can show itself even bigger. 
Glory to God. Paul says something similar. He called himself the chief of sinners. That no matter how bad he was before he found Christ, God could show his amazing grace as an example on him so that anyone can say, hey, Paul lived the worst life to the point of persecuting and killing the church. And yet God's grace was bigger than that. He could show me mercy. Yeah. When you make a statement like that, you could ask a question. Is everyone still good? You're getting the teacher with both barrels tonight. <laughs> Praise God. If, no matter how bad it gets, grace can show itself bigger and in a sense more glorious, you could ask this question. Well, shouldn't I sin more so that grace can show itself even bigger? Surely not. <laughs> I can tell what translation you read just for the way you translate the words ume in Greek. It's not a great question, is it? But it is a valid one, hey. And Paul owes us an answer. And he's such an amazing teacher, he's going to give us one straight away. Because he's introduced a concept, the reality of sin in humanity but also this idea that grace, this thing called grace and the gift of righteousness can, can defeat this and death by it and show itself bigger. But he's used an illustration to demonstrate its glory that leaves some questions open and we need to understand it better to close that door, don't we? So what is his response? Well, glad you asked because Paul is already got a little ahead of us and asked the question, what are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be, or certainly not, depending on which translation you read. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? By the way, if you're wondering about that verse 2 when it says, may it never be, or, or certainly not, or by no means, the ESV, in Greek, it's ume, which is a double negative. Now, English is one of the few languages in history that has the idea that a double negative is a positive. Almost every other language on the earth or in history, if you put a double negative, it means it's absolutely not. Does that make sense? So it's definitely not. That's why there's so many colorful translations to, of those words. Because trying to get across the point, Paul is saying this is not, 100% not. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now remember, I'm a Roman Christian who's reading this or having it read to me. I've got no New Testament. This is new information. What do you mean? Do you know what was also new information to me three years ago when I got the revelation of righteousness? Because for the preceding 15 years, as a believer, nobody told me I was dead. I didn't know, which is probably part of the reason why I didn't understand Romans 5 verses 9 and 10. We'll get there. But nobody told me I was dead. So I used to think that I knew, I'd use words like born again, but I still thought that there was an internal battle going on between an old man and a new man. Are you with me? Who's heard that before? Right. So do you know what the consequence of me believing that was? 
struggled with sin for 15 years, struggled with lust, struggled with pornography, struggled with anger, did everything in my Christian, quote-unquote, Christian wisdom and knowledge and power and understanding to do. And I knew there was no condemnation for those in Christ. I knew that I was forgiven, but just couldn't seem to shift from where I was stuck to freedom. Yeah? Something was wrong because I wasn't actually believing the truth. I didn't understand yet that I was free. That this old man had actually died. And when I didn't understand that, I didn't actually understand the, light, the resurrection of Christ because his life is my life. But that's new information, remember, because you guys don't have a New Testament. You're pretending to be first century Roman Christians. That's new information. I'm going to have to explain myself, or rather Paul is going to have to explain himself. Yeah? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? What a strange statement. Therefore, we have been, past tense, have been buried with him through baptism into death. I'm not trying to crucify my old man. I'm not wrestling with my old man. I'm not dying to it daily. I'm not crucifying it daily, as it were. It actually died. And it's been buried. I've heard people say, oh, the old man's dead, but I'm carrying him around. But if he's been buried, I can't carry him around, can I? It's nonsense. It's just a doctrine we've made up to make excuses for sin. But the Word of God will never justify sin. It only justifies people. Are you with me? That we're really important if we make it through Romans 7 tonight. Let me just set my timer. Because if I get in the zone, it'll be 1 a.m. Just joking. You guys are awesome. You're hungry, right? How good is the word? You can. I've heard expository sermons before and I've been bored by them. But when you preach it, the gospel, it's life, hey? It's hungry. Like the apostles on the, way, on the road to Emmaus and Jesus in disguise opens their mind from Moses and the prophets to prove that Jesus was the Christ. And they said, were not our hearts burning on the way? That's the power of the word. It's revelation. Okay, let's keep going. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We're going to need some more information here. What do you mean, newness of life? For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, some of your translations out there, if you're following in certain ones, it's going to sound like this idea of in the likeness of his resurrection is in the future. The problem is I can't be dead and not alive in between. I need, otherwise, there's, no, there's nothing in between. I can't have buried my old man but not have my new man yet. There's, no, there's got to be something in the middle. But you know what? In Greek, the verse actually uses this clever word called Allah. Not Allah like A-L-L-A-H, but Allah. Allah is a term you put in the middle of a sentence. 
when you want to use it like almost like a seesaw. It means, Allah means on the one hand this, but also on the other hand this. Are you with me? So right in the middle of that sentence is that word Allah. On the one hand, we've been united with him in the likeness of his death. Are you with me? Allah, but also on the other hand, we've been united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Are you with me? That's what the verse says. There's no future tense for the future. It's now. Freedom is now. So when Paul, and they would have read it like that too. So Paul makes a statement like that. We're going to have to ask two questions. What was the likeness of Jesus' death? Right? Because we've shared in it. And also, Allah, on the other hand, what was the likeness of his resurrection? Because we're sharing in that also. Are you with me? Deb stops being on the resurrection side of that statement. You're amazing, Deb Cook. Knowing this, verse 6, right? Paul's going to tell us. I don't need to say anything. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Now, we're going to get to the crux here. For the death that he died, remember, we want to know. We want to know the likeness of Jesus' death because we're sharing in it, or we've shared in it, and we need to know the likeness of his resurrection. It's about to tell us. (laughs) For the death that he died, he died to sin. This guy, on the inside of humanity, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I never understood that verse before because I used to think the word sin was a verb, except that Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. So it sounds almost like heresy, doesn't it? How can Jesus die to sin if he never sinned, if sin is just a verb, but it's not? Corinthians says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took on our wickedness, our corruptness, this disease of sin that was on the inside. He took it on and died with it so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me paint a really clever picture for you. It's clever because Jesus gave it to me. I didn't come up with it. Imagine I'm standing on the edge of a jetty and the water below, there's no coming out. And I've got this creature called sin on the inside of me. Yeah? And then Jesus comes and stands next to me and he says, hey, I want to set you free from that thing because it's going to kill you. I've got an idea. Take my hand. We're going to, we're, let me hold you. And the three of us, right? Three of us. You, me, and sin are going to jump into the water of baptism. And we're all going to drown. But only one person's coming up. Jesus. So he takes my sin in his arms with me and we jump into the water and I die 
and sin dies and Jesus dies. But death can't hold him. So he raises from the dead, except I come up with him. Except it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. He died to sin. And I died to sin. This thing doesn't have control over me anymore, which means that death can't get me anymore. It's no longer Lord over me because it's no longer Lord over Jesus. He already died once and he's never to die again. And death has lost its power over me because sin has lost its power over me. Paul said that the sting of sin is death and the authority or the strength of sin is the law. I never understood that verse because when I think of the sin, of, of, of the sting rather, I would always think of it in terms of what's bad about it. Are you with me? So I was thinking what's, what's bad about death is sin. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So it never made any sense to me. I'm like, I don't understand, God. What, what, why do you mean, what do you mean the sting of death is sin? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I was sitting on my, my porch in America and he said, well, look at the wasps. Tell me what the sting does. It took me a solid 10 minutes to get the theological ideas out of my head so I could just watch them. And as soon as I stopped thinking about it and just watched, I realized the way that the wasp will get you is with its sting. The way that death gets humanity is with sin. The sting, its ability to kill you, death's ability to kill you is sin. That's why it reigned over humanity from Adam to Moses and in fact still does over those that don't know him because it has its stinger in humanity. Because death reigns through sin. But now where death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your power? That's not just the New Testament. That's actually from the Old Testament. Oh, death, where is your sting? It has been removed in Jesus Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin and therefore you're no longer under the dominion of death. His resurrection is my resurrection. Knowing that I'm dead, my old man's dead, means I'm, I know that I'm alive. I'm no longer a slave to sin. He, uh, Ephesians puts it this way, when you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with Christ Jesus. You've been resurrected from the dead. Out of sin. I never understood the resurrection. I was always like, yeah, I know you've forgiven my sins, and yay, Jesus beat death. What does that mean for me, though? I never understood. He's alive, therefore I'm alive. I was dead. I had this thing inside of me. It was a terminal illness, and its symptoms were hate and sin and lust and greed and idolatry. And they're deadly symptoms. But Jesus has destroyed it. Do you know the best way to cure a virus? Kill the host. Kill the host. Do you know you died? The disease of sin is dead. It's gone. You're not under it anymore. That's a pretty good outcome to your faith, hey? These guys, they've read the first or heard the first five 
four chapters of Romans and like, yay, righteousness through faith. What does that mean? Now they're like, hallelujah, righteousness through faith. I've been set free from sin and death. And I've been made new. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We sung all the right songs tonight, hey? Even that last one. It's exactly what I plan to, play, to pray. Ephesians 1, 16. Spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's what this is. That's what Paul's asking for in Ephesians. It's not just flowery language. The riches of his glory and the inheritance in the saints. This is your inheritance. Righteousness. And all that comes of it. This is the riches of the glory. This is his exceeding power towards us who believe. He goes on to say, that was in accordance with the working of his mighty power when he raised Christ from the dead. He's saying, hey, his power towards you is the same as his power towards Christ when he raised him from the dead. You've got resurrection life. You've been saved by his life. Never to walk in sin again. Therefore, do not let sin, this guy, this old bully, rule over you anymore. It's been removed from you. So why would you obey it? You were its slave, but it's been taken out of you. So why would you submit to it again? Because it leads to death. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts. Not your lusts, its lusts. Those desires for sin, they're no longer yours. That creature called sin that was inside of you, that was controlling you by desire, has been removed. That's how it controls humanity, by the way. It gives desires that are irresistible. Not irresistible as in, I can't resist the thing I'm looking at because it's irresistible. Irresistible as in the force of the desire within humanity is so great that it can't be resisted. So humanity is a slave to sin without Christ. Are you with me? That's why preaching the law to the lost is only going to ever identify sin. It will never help them. It will never save them. It might, it might show them their need of a savior, but they can never live up to it. Never. And nor could you. Because you were enslaved to sin. That's what the scripture is saying here came through Adam. You inherited it. You're born that way. With this thing inside of you, giving you desires. And even if you wanted to resist them, you, you couldn't. You needed someone to come and kill the virus. It's like one of those sci-fi movies where the black entity goes into the person and then begins to control them. Yeah? And they can't help it. And they look like a human being. They look like themselves, but there's something on the inside controlling their actions and deeds. And oftentimes in those kinds of movies, they're like, I know what I was doing, but I couldn't help it. Oftentimes in those movies, if you kill the host temporarily and then resuscitate them, the alien dies. It's a picture, hey, of what Jesus did to you. Killed the host. 
Do not go on presenting the members of your body as, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as, as alive from the dead, and the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. This thing is not master over you anymore. Paul just made this strange comment, you're not under law, but under grace. When you make a statement like that, once again, you can ask another silly question, right? Well, if we're not under the law, but under grace, can't we just keep going on sinning? Yeah? Certainly not. But by no means. May it never be. I'm going to interject with a little commentary here. I feel like Paul's about to say this. If you think that's the case, then you don't really understand what sin is. It's not about what you can do. It's about a desire, a deadly desire that wants to control you because sin is a slave driver. It's a slave master. And the outcome of its actions are death. Shall we, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Now be careful with that word obedience because Paul's not talking about obedience to the law. He's actually talking about obedience to the faith in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Trying to be obedient to the law is not going to set you free from sin. But being obedient to the message of faith in Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection will set you free. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's the mystery of the gospel. But thanks be to God. Now here's the good news. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, past tense, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That's the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul said, I, want, I, I made it my intention to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Yeah. That was the message they heard. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You know, you can't help it. If you actually live by faith, stop trying to live in your own power a holy life and start believing that you're the righteousness of God, believing in the power of the death and resurrection of Christ. You won't be able to help it. I can't, I can't help but be holy. I can't help. It's my natural desire now. It's in my nature. I've escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust because I've become a partaker of the divine nature. It's actually who you are now. As soon as you stop trying to do it in your own strength, bang, freedom. Letting Christ live through you. You can't help it. Sin is no longer in your nature. Believe the truth that it's dead. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know what happens? The Holy Spirit begins to worship God by your actions and deeds through you. You become a place of worship of God or a temple of the Holy Spirit. A house in which the Holy Spirit worships God through you. You can't help it. I'm a slave to righteousness. I can't help it. I can't help but loving people. It's not me. It's Him inside of me. I was a slave to sin. I couldn't help it. But the good news of the gospel said, 
I don't have this slave master anymore. He made me do things I didn't want to do. And at the end of the day, he paid me death. But now I've been redeemed. Somebody came and bought me off of him with the precious blood of Jesus. And now I belong to God. And there's a Holy Spirit inside of me that worships God through me. And he loves God and he loves his people. And he wants to see people saved because he has God's compassion, God's heart. He, he's dead to himself. He doesn't care for his own needs or his own, own selfish desires because he's actually just like Jesus who came as a servant and laid his life down for his brothers and his friends. It's who I am. It's who you are. And as you enter into it by faith, you'll walk free. The reason I'm taking such labor pains to make you understand is because I want to remove the cognitive dissonance between your experiences and the truth so that you can enter into it. Yeah, Because if you don't believe it, you won't be able to walk in it. Because the level to which you believe the truth is the level that you'll walk in it. Because this is a faith journey. And the reason it doesn't seem to make sense at that juncture is because it's a mystery. It is the power of the gospel. It's foolishness to the wise, and it's a stumbling block for people that are looking for signs and wonders. But if you want to see a sign and a wonder, look at the transformation that happens to a person when they find Jesus Christ. He transforms us. I can't help it. I've become a slave to righteousness. Now, Paul says this, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. A few years ago, I read that verse again. And when I read the word sanctification, the Holy Spirit said this to me. Why do you assume that it's talking about a process? Sanctification. Why do you assume that it's talking about a process? I had no answer. But I think God was asking me a question. He's telling me something, right? And I realized that I had read my theological training into the Scripture rather than letting the Scripture dictate my theology. Because there's nothing about a process here. Something changed on the inside that set me free from sin, and now the outside is clean also. Watch. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the bowl, but on the inside, you are full of death and hypocrisy and lust and greed. Yeah? But he said, if you clean the inside of the bowl, the outside will be clean also. All the mums in the room, if your son cleans the inside of a bowl, is the outside clean also? Is it? It's not a true question. Is it clean? No. So obviously Jesus wasn't talking about bowls. Are you with me? It's fun, but he's deadly serious. If you clean the inside, the outside will be clean also. You can try all day long to be externally clean. You can try and act the right way, do the right things, all that sort of stuff. But if you're born again on the inside, the outside will be clean because you're a slave to righteousness.
The reason why he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. It sounds really harsh, but this is what I think, it's actually what I believe Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, this is new stuff to you guys. You're new to the things of the Spirit. So I'm using a possibly imperfect human metaphor that you're familiar with to explain a spiritual reality that you're not familiar with. Are you with me? Because they're not used to the things of the Spirit yet. So he's used something they were familiar with to show them something they weren't. Are you with me? You were a slave to sin, but you're now a slave to righteousness. And he finishes the chapter. I'm going to finish at the end of the chapter here. I'd love to do Romans 7 with you, but it's just not going to be time. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? He's talking about your old lives. For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. The word's actually fruit. You derive your fruit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We've heard that preached to preach the gospel to people, right? We say, oh, the the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And we've, I've often heard it done in terms of Jesus just died for your sins to forgive you, but not to set you free from them. Are you with me? So then we read that verse, we go, oh yeah, what you deserve is this, but what you're going to get is this. Are you with me? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. But that isn't actually the context into which Paul is speaking. He's saying, hey, you were a slave to a slave master that made you work in a certain way. And the outcome of that work, what you got paid, the wages you got paid at the end of the day was death. But the free gift of God is this eternal life on the inside. It's not just for eternity when your physical body dies. You've got eternal life inside of you. And it's bearing fruit called sanctification. That's why I retranslated the word. Look it up. It's karpos. It doesn't mean benefit. It means fruit. And he uses the word several times coming into the uh, beginning of Romans 7. And if you miss it, you'll miss the string of thought. Which is why it's hard to translate between languages. You can lose people's train of thought. The fruit of my old way of living was death. But the fruit of this eternal life, the Holy Spirit living inside of me, is sanctification. And what I get at the end of the day? Eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. I want to show you guys an illustration. See, when I got this revelation that my old man was dead, and I'm, a, I'm actually just Christ living inside of me now, and that I'm free from sin, I'm set free from it, I'm dead to sin, I actually just stopped sinning. Nathaniel Oliveri came to America, talked about how sin is external. The Holy Spirit gave me revelation on the spot. I'd pushed my revelation of grace as far as it could go and I couldn't get free. And as soon as I understood the truth of the gospel, that Jesus didn't just die for me, he died as me. And that I was actually set free from sin. That sin was external and the desires I was feeling were not my own. I just stopped sinning. I haven't had a lustful thought in almost three years. Since that day, I have not had one single lustful thought. And I'm not talking about I've resisted lustful thoughts. 
or resisted the actions that could potentially come of lustful thoughts, I actually haven't had one. I've been set free because I, I recognized that I was dead to sin. And so the devil couldn't fool me anymore to thinking that they were my desires. It's changed everything. The next date is a game changer. Absolutely. This is the fullness of the gospel and this is the hour and a mandate on this house for this to go across the earth. And it's not a new gospel. Smith Wigglesworth preached it. John G. Lake preached it. If you need to, I have proof, but I don't have time to give it to you now. The next morning, I was driving my car and as a really stupid experiment, I actually tried to have a lustful thought and I couldn't. Do you know that in uh, 1 Peter 3, it says that we can't sin because we're born of God and a seed abides in us, so we cannot sin. That scripture used to terrify me because I thought I wasn't good enough. But when I got the revelation of what Jesus has done in me, then I got free. I'm like, oh, that's just identifying me. That's who I am. And I'm driving my car and these kids cut me off at this merging lane. Like, you know, five kids in a Nissan Skyline and they cut in real close, the little zip around. Now, I'd actually struggled with road rage before that day. And I did all the Christian things. Oh, I can't think like that. I need some water, sorry. I can't get angry. I've got to resist it, resist it. I try and make excuses for them. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they don't know any better, right? It's actually not the same as being free from anger. It's, it's sin management. They cut me off and I laughed because I realized the first time I was dead I'm dead I don't care what you do to me I'm dead <laughs> it's just Christ that lives inside of me I don't have any anger for you sorry unapologetic obedience right I don't have I could see anger but it was out there I don't know if you understand that but in my spirit I could see it out there I could hear its voice but I'm like I'm actually free I don't have to wrestle with you I'm not in the flesh, I'm in the spirit, says Romans 8. I wish we had time to go there. So I got free straight away. But it's one thing to be free, but I'm a teacher in the body of Christ. I have a mandate to be able to empower the body of Christ, to walk in the full stature of Christ. So I had to be able to explain it. And after fumbling it a couple of times, I took side by side with the Holy Spirit and said, it's one thing for me to be free, but I have to be able to communicate this to others because it's truth. Show me how to communicate it. So I'll wrap up on this illustration. He showed me the most amazing illustration on what happens inside my head to walk free, not just from sin, but from the power of temptation. You with me? You guys got five more minutes of concentration? So I had this vision immediately. He's so faithful. I asked him to show me how to explain it. Bang, straight away, this vision. I'm actually standing in a church on a stage with a microphone in my hand. And I'm performing this act for the congregation. So imagine with me, I'm the pastor. Hopefully the film crew are doing okay. I won't try not go past the pillar. Love you, Esther. Imagine with me on the stage 
there are two massive guys, massive guys, six foot five, 130 kilos, ex-special forces, and they're dressed in black from head to toe. And they have something printed across their chest. In bold white letters, it says the word temptation. Two big guys, right? And they have the word temptation written across their chest. Now, I realize it's like, well, how is that temptation? Wait for a second. So at the back of the stage, over here, the whole, now I'm not trying to be crass, but the Holy Spirit asked me to say the vision exactly as I saw it. There's a girl sitting down, a young girl, and she's dressed as a prostitute. Now, if you've come from that lifestyle, God loves you and will totally redeem you. He loves you. She's dressed as a prostitute, and she has a wooden sign hung around her neck. And the sign actually has, in the same white letters, the word sin written on it. You guys with me? So two big guys here, they look like security guards, and they have the word temptation written on their chest. And the girl at the back, and she has the word sin written on a wooden board that's around her neck. Everybody with me? Okay. So in the illustration, I walk in from the side of the stage. And as I walk towards the platform, these two massive guys come and run out at me. And they try to grab me. And they want to pull me towards the young girl that says sin. Temptation is trying to pull me towards sin. You catching the metaphor now? Yeah. God's brilliant, hey? So in the first scene, I try to resist these guys. Now, I'm probably 83 kilos. I'm pretty wily, but I'm not going to resist two massive guys, am I? My chances of getting away from them are minimal. Maybe one time in a thousand, I might be able to slip the net and run away. But to resist them, almost impossible. What am I doing? What's it a picture of? Or what am I trying to do? What am I doing? Someone said, here we go, it's starting to... I'm trying to resist temptation. Does it work? It doesn't work, hey. It's not solving the problem of sin. I'm not strong enough to resist temptation. So then the whole scene resets and we start again. So I come in this time from the side of the stage and I see these two massive guys. Do you know what I do? I take a little right-hand turn and go around the back of the, the seating. Now, I won't go all the way because the cameras won't be able to catch me. But I walk around the back. What am I doing now? I'm avoiding temptation. Does it work? Does it solve the problem of sin? It's still there. How long can you avoid temptation for? Come on, how, can, how long can you avoid all temptation? Probably about five minutes. Not only that, but if you try to avoid temptation in that context, you're going to live a really dysfunctional life. You'll never be able to use a computer by yourself. Never be able to walk down the street past the bottle shop. Never be alone with a girl or a person of opposite sex. Or, or even same sex if that's the thing the enemies try to bring into your life avoiding temptation doesn't work you, you won't 
you won't live a functional life. And eventually, and that eventually is probably going to come pretty quick, you're going to run into temptation somewhere, right? So it doesn't work. It's not, is it solving the problem of sin? Nope. Okay. So the next time I come in, I actually walk in with Pastor Tony Thompson from our Atlanta church. Now, two things you've got to note about Pastor Tony is that he's a, a big man, physically ex-armed ex forces as well, but also he's full of faith and the Holy Spirit and lives in purity. So he represents both those things. So I walk in with him and he helps me resist temptation. Now, Tony's a big guy, but these guys are bigger than us. Has it improved my chances of resisting these guys? Yeah, a little bit, hey. Is it guaranteeing it? Can I take Pastor Tony with me everywhere? Definitely not. What is it a picture of? So shoot some religious cows right now. What, what is it a picture of? Not self-righteousness? What is it a picture of? Accountability. Right. Accountability is good, but it doesn't solve the problem of sin. It doesn't actually set me free from sin. Accountability is amazing, but it hasn't solved the problem of sin. If it could, now hear me clearly, if it could solve the problem of sin, then I could just live under the law, but with your help. But it doesn't work. Jesus is the one that set me free. So we're going to have to see how. So I've exhausted all my Christianese now. I've tried resisting temptation. I've tried avoiding it. I've tried accountability. But none have solved the problem of sin. So then we need some good news. It resets again. So I go back again. And I walk in from the side. And these guys see me. And they get their angry look. And they come darting towards me. And I pull something out of my back pocket. And I show it to them. It looks like an ID card. But you know what's written on it? The words, dead to sin. Do you know what happens? They just step back and leave me alone. Because they don't have authority to touch me. You know when you go like to a concert and there's security guards at the backstage door? You could try getting in, but it's going to be messy. But the one thing that they will respect is your ID. If you have a backstage pass, your identity, they will just let you through. There's no, there's no battle. There's no argument. You just let through. Temptation doesn't have authority anymore to pull you if you know that you're dead to sin. When that voice has tried to come back to me, I have actually, if you watch me long enough, if you were to follow me around, you might catch me say it under my breath. I'm dead to sin. I've actually looked temptation in the face and said, I'm dead to sin and it's changed. I've felt it lose its power over me. It's just lost its power. I'm not struggling to try not to sin. Temptation itself has lost its power because the nature of sin actually got taken out of me. And when I know the truth, I know my authority, my identity, I can just hold it up and say, I'm dead to sin. Sorry. That might sound like the end of the story, except what the Holy Spirit did next shocked me in the most beautiful way. Because I'm like, yay, I get the revelation, Lord. Thank you. And then the vision keeps going. I actually walked straight past these two guys and I walked straight over to the young lady. Who'd forgotten about her? I almost had. 
Do you know what I did? I reached down and that, remember the sign that was across her chest? I actually flipped it over and written in bold white letters on the back of that sign was redemption. I took her hand and picked her up and led her to Jesus. Do you know, because I'm free from sin, I'm dead to sin, I can reach people and into places that would have made me stumble in the past with the gospel. Before I knew I was dead to sin, before I knew that I was free, it hindered my ability to love and preach and reach because I was vulnerable to a lie that would take me down a path of sin. But now that I know who I am, I know what he has truly done. Temptation has lost its power. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to partner with us in spreading the gospel to the nations, you can do so via our website, www.glorycitychurch.com.au. We would love to hear from you. If you have a prayer need, please send us an email at info at glorycitychurch.com.au. We would also love to hear your testimonies. You can email these praise reports to info at glorycitychurch.com.au. God bless.